You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Drunken Dak, Two-Gun Tony, The Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'm pleased to introduce our newest Commodore, Redbeard, the Smoky Mountain Pirate. I didn't see Captain Redbeard when I visited the Smokies recently, which may be the second time I've missed him. And of course, our quartermasters, Samuel and Adam. History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time we talked about the Dutch merchant Jan Pietersoen Cohen. To call him a merchant isn't, well, it's not inaccurate, but it doesn't bring to mind the right kind of image, does it? He was a businessman in a much more modern sense, an executive, a titan of industry, even. He was one of the most powerful people of the early 1600s, despite not coming from an aristocratic background, despite not having a famous family name. Jan Pietersoen Cohen was, in nearly every respect, a self-made man. He had many benefits going into life, a good education and a good family, but no power to speak of. He wrested that power away from his rivals, his underlings, and what were and all but name, his subjects. Last time we talked about his rise in positions of power within the VOC, the Dutch East India Company, but today we're going to see him rise to an unequaled standing in Southeast Asia. This is episode 130, No Mercy. When we left off, the Dutch East India Company was in almost total control of the island of Nera, just to the north of Great Banda. That was their center of power in the Banda Islands, these small, nutmeg-producing islands, in the center of what are called the Spice Islands, the Malaku Islands, which are in the center of Indonesia. 
But the island of Nero was not the extent of Jan Pieter Soon Cohen's ambitions. He wanted all of the Banda Islands. He wanted all of the Spice Islands. He wanted all of Indonesia. The main barriers to that goal were not the local populace, nor were they the many sultanates in the region or even the Chinese influence. The main barrier that the Dutch East India Company had in Southeast Asia was the English East India Company, and Jan Pieter Soon Cohen intended to see to it that they were pushed out. Throughout these sixteen teens, at the direction of Jan Pieter Soon Cohen, the VOC embarked on campaign after campaign, ruthlessly claiming former Portuguese territory all across Indonesia and India. They militarized the region during these campaigns. Now, English captains from the English East India Company would occasionally show up. Some of them even met with Cohen to barter for the right to trade in nutmeg. But Cohen was not friendly with the English. Often he was openly hostile to the English, and more than once an English fleet was chased off at the point of a cannon on the orders of Jan Pieter Soon Cohen. One wonders if this would have been company policy had somebody else been there directly overseeing operations in place of Jan Cohen. This was the dawn of what's called the Spice Race. Cohen ordered an attack on Puloi. This attack was not overseen by Cohen. He was not in command of it. Cohen was not a military man. He was a merchant. He was a financial man. He was the CFO. That attack on Pulawai under another commander failed. See, both Pulorun and Pulawai had been militarized by the English. But it wasn't Englishmen fighting the Dutch incursion on Pulawai. It was a militia of Bandanese. The people of Pulorun and Pulawai well, they saw what had happened to their neighbors on Nira at the hands of the Dutch. That campaign of terror, of burning people alive, of mass murder, of forcing girls into slavery, sexual and otherwise. And the people of Pulorun and Puloai, well, they believed that the English were a safer bet. Later down the road, the English would, of course, be guilty of their fair share of atrocities. But for now, they were definitely winning the hearts and minds of the people of the Banda Islands. So the Bandanese, on Pulorun and Pulawai, in fact, all across the Banda Islands, fought a guerrilla campaign with English muskets at their disposal. You can look at any number of proxy wars fought during the 20th century to see military advisors overseeing shipments of weapons and guiding the hands of local soldiers, but not officially fighting a war. The commander of that first attempt at the island fell into disgrace after he was repelled, but the Dutch, the East India Company, and the Navy came in force a year later. In 1616, they didn't send a militia, they sent an armada. That armada blockaded Puloai. The people were unable to bring in food, or to go out fishing, or to bring in water. And when they were weak, some of them near death, the Dutch sent their soldiers ashore. Once again, 
At the hands of the Dutch in the Banda Islands, we see the torture and the rape and the murder and the burning. It was horrible. It was always horrible, and it happened over and over again. But it was at that time, in the wake of the Dutch capture of Pulawai, that King James I of England adopted King of Pulurun and Pulawai as a part of his royal title. He's very clear here that he intends these to stay English territory. A year later, 1617, Cohen was planning another similar raid on Pulorun, but his bosses, who of course had constant communication with their men in England, wrote Jan Pieter Soon Cohen and told him to cool it with attacking the English. They ordered him to refrain from any, quote, maltreatment, end quote, of Englishmen, and they ordered him even to pull his forces back from Pulawai. It looked very much like the English were planning a war, and the company did not want that, but Cohen was furious. He wrote his superiors in the East India Company, quote, If by night and day proud thieves broke into your house who were not ashamed of robbery or other offense, how would you defend your property against them without having recourse to maltreatment? This is what the English are doing against you in the Moluccas. Consequently, we are surprised to receive instructions not to do them bodily harm. If the English have this privilege above all other nations, it must be nice to be an Englishman. End quote. I love that letter. I clearly hate Jan Pieter Soon Cohen, but that letter, oh, you can feel the teeth clenching behind it. Jan Cohen was going to go on to do all that he could to ensure that it was not nice to be an Englishman in Southeast Asia. He was promoted to Governor-General of the VOC, the top position in that organization in Asia. He still had to report back to the Council of Governors, but in Asia, where it took a year to hear from or get news to those governors in Amsterdam, his rule was absolute. He was at the time... 31 years old. The Council of Seventeen, the Council of Governors of the VOC, promoted him on the one condition that he would not engage in any violence with the English. And Cohen agreed. But Cohen was lying. And remember that all throughout this period, the Dutch were expanding at a massive rate. They were making inroads in Thailand, which they called Siam, and in Vietnam, which they called Indochina, and at Nippon, which they called Japan, as per the Chinese name. And all of that is great. It's bringing wealth and power and influence to the Dutch company. But the tiny, minuscule, insignificant little specks of land called the Banda Islands obsessed Jan Pieter Soon Cohen. They were, after all, the source of all of the world's nutmeg, potentially the most valuable commodity in the world, they weren't yet entirely in his control. He had a lot of influence there and bases of power, but the English still held Pulorun and Great Banda, the jewel of the Banda Islands, eluded him still. And he blamed the English for much of that, 
and as it turns out, he blamed them correctly. I don't know that the English were in fact behind the vile Bandanese treachery of 1609, but at this point, there is no doubt that they were backing the Orang Kaya in their guerrilla campaign against the Dutch. So, he sailed away from the Banda Islands. Jan Cohen sailed for Jakarta, which was neutral territory that did not belong to the English or the Dutch. It was the seat of a sultanate, ruled over by a man they called the Prince, and both the English and the Dutch and the Portuguese even had factories there. For a time, Cohen appeared to be doing as he was told, to be working with the English, not against them. And then, with some flimsy excuses, Cohen ordered the English factory in Jakarta burned to the ground, and he ordered every Englishman there arrested. I mean, think about it. Even if these Englishmen, these specific Englishmen, were working directly with the Orangkaya and supplying them with weapons, well, you couldn't arrest them on foreign neutral territory. That's kind of the deal with neutral territory, right? And Jan Cohen succeeded in his mission. He did burn that factory to the ground, and he did have those men arrested. But wouldn't you know it, just as he was beginning to clean up the mess, an English armada, significantly more powerful than his own, sailed into Jakarta. It became pretty quickly apparent to the English commander, Sir Thomas Dale, exactly what had happened. So he blockaded the harbor of Jakarta. Nobody was allowed in or out. He had a full eleven warships, large ships of the line, versus Cohen's seven smaller ships. Now, Sir Thomas Dale demanded surrender of the Dutch, but Jan Cohen refused. And much to Admiral Dale's surprise, on 2nd January 1619, Cohen lined his ships up for battle. Now, there was no way he could defeat the English, but maybe he could break the line. The Dutch advanced on Dale's ships. And what followed was called, quote, a cruel and bloody fight, end quote. Imagine being the Prince of Jakarta. You have prospered by doing business with the English and the Dutch and having a neutral territory. And you're looking down on the harbor from your palace window and you see the blockade. You see these two fleets of European warships lined up for battle and then they fire. Unfortunately, you would not be able to see very much after only a few minutes as the air would be filled with smoke. Maybe you could see the masts above the smoke faltering and falling, and of course you wouldn't be able to hear much over the roar of the guns, but between volleys you might be able to hear the endless screams of pain echoing across your city. It was a sudden and brief battle, with the smaller Dutch vessels trying to cut their way through the English blockade. And Cohen was defeated kind of. He managed to escape, but his fleet was broken and bloodied. His ship was only one of three that managed to make it out. Nonetheless, his ship, broken as it was, made it to Nera, to regroup and to go on the offensive against the English in Southeast Asia. However, 
if at this point Admiral Dale had been a man of cunning, he could have destroyed the Dutch Admiral and trounced them from Southeast Asia, maybe forever. Maybe he could have claimed the entirety of the Banda Islands, maybe the entirety of Indonesia for the English East India Company, but that wasn't his mission. His mission was one of trade. He was so heavily armed because of the violence that had been shown by the Dutch. So instead of making for Banda and destroying Jan Cohen, he managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Stephen R. Bone calls Dale, quote, feckless and unfocused, end quote, and that sounds about right to me. Dale sailed off for mainland India. He, frankly, probably didn't know how to proceed, and that gave Cohen time to secure his hold and to tighten his grip. In his absence at Jakarta, the Dutch militia that was still there poked their heads out from their hiding places, and they looked around, and they saw no Englishmen in sight, and they claimed the city as a Dutch protectorate. They renamed the city, quote, as Holland used to be called in days of antiquity, Batavia. This was the first open warfare, the first acknowledged shots fired in the conflict between England and Holland, a conflict that was going to dominate the second half of the 1600s. However, before the English and the Dutch could duke it out on the main stage, there were other wars to fight. Wars that would be larger and more destructive than anything the English and the Dutch could do to each other. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside 
The Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Back in Europe, the Holy Roman Empire was on fire. The emperor was weak, and at the moment, princes and city-states were at war with one another. It was a German civil war. But of course, the Dutch were still engaged in their 80 years war, their war of independence against Spain, and the Spanish Habsburgs were close allies to the Holy Roman Habsburgs. The Dutch saw this opportunity to join the fray, to further weaken Habsburg hegemony there in Europe. Joining what would later be called the Thirty Years' War was central to the Netherlands' plan for independence. However, and this cannot be ignored, if the Dutch were going to win this war, they had to ensure that their allies, and they were allies, remember, to the rear, the English people, weren't going to get angry about all of the death there in Asia and attack them, do so in retribution for Cohen's reckless actions against the English. The Dutch government was very concerned that this one man, Cohen, was going to ruin their chances for independence in his own struggle for power and greed. So England and the Netherlands, as well as the governing bodies of both the VOC and the EIC, all got together to have some discussions, to work out some deals, and to sign some treaties. And we're not talking about the kind of contracts that were signed on Nero, we're talking about ratified, formalized treaties with ancient and powerful names at the bottom, signed in the halls of power of both nations. These were treaties to ensure that both nations would be allies against the Habsburgs in this coming conflict, and that they were going to work together to oust Spain and Portugal from Asia forever. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of rich and powerful aristocrats and leaders of industry telling you not to do anything stupid. Cohen bowed to that pressure. He agreed to make peace with the English and even offered to lead the effort of the Allied forces against Spain in Southeast Asia. Truly, an admirable individual, the kind of fellow who can put years of hatred and bad blood and animosity behind him to lead the forces to work against a common enemy, the sort of person that we should all look up to. Am I right? Of course, I'm lying to you. I'm lying because Cohen was lying. He had no intention of honoring that treaty, no matter the pedigree of names that graced it. Cohen is not only indicative of the company's policies, but of the shift in culture. He was going to flout these rules set down by great aristocratic, powerful ancient families in the name of profit. And he was going to do so by using lawyerish tricks, loopholes in the law, all, of course, stage-managed by he himself. That line may be my favorite line in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Loyalty is no longer the currency of the realm. 
I'm afraid currency is the currency of the realm. He was going to be able to do so because he had agreed to be in command of the Allied forces in Southeast Asia, and he was able to send the English off on useless, faraway missions. Yes, yes, we need you in India. Yes, we need you in Japan. Yes, we need you in the Philippines. And at just that moment, Jan Pietersoon Cohen noted a rise in guerrilla attacks on the tiny, inconsequential, yet infinitely profitable island of Great Banda. The Dutch stronghold on the island, and they did have a fort, although the island was not pacified, was called Fort Nassau. And at the moment, he says, it was under siege. Cohen demanded, since he was in overall command, that the English, according to the terms of their agreement, immediately provide one-third of all their ships and men to aid him in defense of Fort Nassau. Those were the rules of the treaty, but of course, the English were unable to abide by the rules of the treaty because he had sent them all to India or Japan or somewhere far away. Cohen created a situation in which the English, through no fault of their own, would be in violation of the terms of the treaty, and he was in a position to declare the treaty itself null and void. Not the treaty between England and Holland that affected affairs on the continent during the Thirty Years' War, but in Southeast Asia, his word was law. Now, I acknowledge that I am vilifying Jan Pietersoon Cohen here, but he absolutely deserves it. Jan Pietersoon Cohen was evil. However, he was right, at least about the English on Great Banda, arming and aiding the rebels. Now, the question here is whether or not this was an official English policy. That would, of course, be in violation of the treaty. Was it perhaps an English East India Company policy? That would be in violation of the company agreement. Or was this the action of interlopers? of men who were no better than pirates operating of their own accord. And that is the question. That's always the question. The question to which I am ever searching for an answer. It's the excuse to which the English always turn time and time again. They were operating of their own accord. Outlaws. No, 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 no. Just pirates. And we don't know the answer in this case to that question. Regardless, there were English on Great Banda aiding the rebels there. They had a coalition of leaders from the Banda Islands, nearly all of the Arongkaya from the Banda Islands, there on the island, helping to defend their largest and most important property from Dutch incursion. They were gathered there to lead the fight against the Dutch East India Company alongside their English allies. And Cohen was going to break that alliance. He brought a fleet in and dispatched one ship to encircle the island. They approached harbors and coves and inlets. They weren't there to land, they were there to draw fire from the gun batteries on shore and to note the location of those gun batteries. And they noted that there was one place that was 
undefended. A perfect place to land a small boat and a small crew carrying large bags of coin. Coin that they would use to bribe a few key turncoats on the island, men who could sabotage the defenses of the defenders. And once those defenses were sabotaged, Cohen could bombard the shore and invade. He overran the Bandanese gun batteries, spiked the guns or carried them to his ships, and held the shoreline in a day. The guerrillas of Great Banda were all up in the mountains, where it would be almost impossible to flush them out. They knew the land far better than any of the Dutch ever would. But Cohen didn't need to flush them out. He could draw them out. Cohen set his men free in a reign of terror all across the island. Now this seems to be Cohen's M.O. It seems to be the Dutch M.O. at the time. But this was almost incomprehensibly terrible. I think about Queen Boudicca, the British Celtic guerrilla leader who fought the Romans. When Boudicca was finally captured and defeated, the Romans beat Boudicca in view of all of her soldiers and raped her daughters in front of everyone who could have fought them. Imagine that only... Instead of one singular figurehead against which the Romans could show all of their scorn, it was the families of all of the Orangkaya, captured, brought into the center of town, beaten, raped, tied to the rack, flayed alive, beheaded, and burned. Not necessarily in that order. Over and over again they did this, in every village. The tactic worked. It drew out the leaders, the Orangkaya, of all of the Banda Islands. It drew them out of the mountains to offer their surrender to Jan Cohen. They did so with a gold band and a copper kettle, and Cohen accepted their surrender, but he did so only with terms. First, the people of the Banda Islands were to give, as in for free, 10% of all of the nutmeg produced on their islands to the director general, read Cohen, of the VOC. Second, the other 90% of the nutmeg produced on the Banda Islands would be sold to the VOC at prices lower than had ever been agreed to before. Third, the people of the Banda Islands would send him every man of a certain age to help build a Dutch fort and to work on plantations that would be controlled by the Dutch. They would not be paid wages. They would officially be slaves of the VOC. But Cohen agreed that they could stay at their homes and with their families and that the leaders who sold the nutmeg would be allowed to distribute that money however they saw fit. And fourth, the Orangkaya as of this very moment, when Cohen accepted their surrender, would be taken as hostages to ensure compliance. The elders agreed to these terms. They had no other choice. It was the only way to stop the horror that was occurring across their lands. But they were obviously unacceptable. The people of Great Banda would never be able to comply to these terms, 
it would be a destruction of their entire civilization. However, the Orangkaya agreed and were taken into captivity, and that sacrifice bought the people of Great Banda, as well as their English allies up in the mountains, it bought them time, time to escape, and it worked. Many, many women and children who would have otherwise been unable to escape were taken onto English ships and relocated to Pulorun. They were refugees, but they were alive. They took as many as possible away, and many left on non-English ships, going as far as possible in their proa, which, as we know, can reach the ends of the earth. But even still, not nearly enough people were able to escape. After a few days' time, when the slaves who had been ordered to present themselves before Cohen did not appear, Cohen tried one final tactic to draw them out of hiding, to make the people of Great Banda agree to his terms. He had the 45 Orangkaya from all around the Banda Islands that were currently in his captivity brought out into the town square. Some of these Orangkaya were of lesser rank, mayors, we might think, some greater, the governor class of Orangkaya. Of the lesser rank, Cohen had many of these tied to the rack and tortured with hot irons and coals. He only had one man at a time tortured, so this went on for several days and yet his demands were still not met. So Cohen produced a surprise. He sent a messenger to his flagship, and boat came back, carrying an elite guard of Japanese mercenaries, ronin samurai, each of whom carried an impressive and very, very sharp katana. Cohen's men knew what was about to happen, and many of them were disgusted, but they were unable to do anything. They were under Cohen's yoke just as much as their captives were. One of these, Lieutenant Nicholas von Wert, wrote of what he saw. Quote, Six Japanese soldiers, with their sharp swords, beheaded and quartered the eight chief Orangkaya, and then beheaded and quartered the thirty-six others. This execution was awful to see. The Orangkaya died silently, without uttering any sound, except that one of them, speaking in the Dutch tongue, said, Sirs, have you no mercy? But indeed, nothing availed. He goes on, All that happened was so dreadful as to leave us stunned, the heads and quarters of those who had been executed were impaled upon bamboos and so displayed. Thus did it happen. God knows who is right. End quote. In the modern world, when someone says God knows how or why this happened, usually that is taken to mean nobody knows and it's impossible to know unless you are God, but that's not what the lieutenant meant here. His last line there, Thus did it happen, God knows who is right, was the closing argument in Van Wert's testimony against 
Jan Pieter Sun Cohen. He is saying that thus did it happen, and God knows I am telling the truth. The rape and the burning had not worked. The torture of the men who led the Banda Islands had not worked, so Cohen had resorted to his last plan. But, in truth, this was his only plan. He was going to see this done one way or another, and that execution of all of the leaders of the Banda Islands was only the beginning. He was now poised to undertake the final phase for his plan, a plan that had been brewing. Well, I'll let Stephen R. Bone describe it. He writes, quote, His plan had been brewing since 1609. He wanted to depopulate the islands to replace their inhabitants with imported slave labor under VOC control. He proceeded with the ethnic cleansing of the Banda Islands. VOC troops burned dwellings, rounded up entire villages, and herded the captives onto ships so that they could be sold as slaves. Thousands of men, women, and children died of disease and starvation, Barely a thousand of the original 15,000 residents remained in the Banda Islands. End quote. No reputable author, certainly no reputable author of history, uses a term like ethnic cleansing lightly. But that's exactly what was happening here. What Jan Pieter Zun Cohen did was not unlike the actions undertaken by Adolf Hitler. In his search for German Lebensraum, it was not unlike the actions undertaken by Joseph Stalin or Chairman Mao or on the killing fields. It was ethnic cleansing. And though it was on a smaller scale than the actions undertaken by an Adolf Hitler, if we were to look at it per capita, Cohen might be one of the most successful ethnic cleansers of all time. However, his men, the men who actually did the work of that ethnic cleansing, were disgusted with themselves and everything they had done, but more than anything else, they were disgusted by the man who had pushed them into it, who very clearly would have had them killed and dumped into the ocean on the other side of the world from their homes had they not. And many of them gathered together to tell the Council of Seventeen exactly what Cohen had done. That testimony given by Lieutenant Nicholas von Wert was one of many, men who had seen horrors the likes of which they would never, ever forget. Another officer who gave his testimony against Jan Pieter Soon Cohen to see that he was brought to justice said, quote, Things are carried on in such a criminal and murderous way that the blood of the poor people cries to heaven for revenge. Quote. Cohen was found guilty by the Council of Seventeen, guilty of excessive force. He received from the Council of Seventeen an official rebuke. The governors of the East India Company realized that he had gone a bit far. But that's not all the Council of Seventeen gave him. The governors of the United Dutch East India Company also handed down to Jan Pieter Soon Cohen a bonus. A bonus of 3,000 guilders, that's 3,000 gold pieces, 
for his good works in securing the Dutch monopoly on all of the nutmeg in the world. That's not the end of the story. It's not even the end of Cohen's story. He would go on for years serving as the head of the Dutch East India Company in Asia. But it's the end of this story. From here on out, more or less, we're looking at a story that we've told before. It's the rest of the story of the 1600s, a century that was, from this point on, defined by war. And that warfare would shape the face of pirates and piracy moving forward. The pirates were forged in those wars. And those wars, at least those that dominated the second half of the 1600s, were wars created by the East India Companies. The Thirty Years' War was bigger, with bigger concerns, but, I mean, let's look at that even. England was briefly involved in the Thirty Years' War, but of course they fell into civil war and could no longer aid the conflict. The Netherlands obviously continued to be involved in the Thirty Years' War as part of their Eighty Years' War against the Spanish for independence. But in that war, in Southeast Asia at least, they played kind of a Soviet Union role. You know, the Soviet Unions in World War II marched one of the greatest armies that the world had ever seen. The Red Army liberated people up and down Eastern Europe from the Nazis, and that's wonderful. We all support people being freed from Nazi control, right? But then, what happens when the war is over? The Soviets rescued those people from Nazi control, but now it's Soviet territory. During the Thirty Years' War, once the English were occupied with their own conflict back in the homeland, the Dutch, both the Dutch East India Company and the Dutch Navy, they were fighting the Spanish in Southeast Asia. They were ousting the Spanish and the Portuguese from Indonesia, and all of that's great if you're allied to the Dutch in the Thirty Years' War. But during that whole time, they were militarizing. They were building forts and harbors and shipyards. They were building ships and cannon. And by the end of the Thirty Years' War, the Dutch were in control of almost all of Indonesia. And that's not all. They controlled the coasts of southern India and Africa. They controlled the coast of Brazil, and they controlled New Amsterdam and North America. And those are their bigger settlements, but they had outposts in the West Indies and the Persian Gulf and North Africa and Japan and China. They had a global empire. And then, of course, we see the wars that defined pirates more than any other wars, except for one. We see the Anglo-Dutch Wars. Three major conflicts between England and the Netherlands. Conflicts that have been the background of this show since almost the beginning. You know, every time we get a new crop of pirates, thousands of new young men that show up, it's always because of one of these Anglo-Dutch wars, almost always. The most recent group of pirates on our show, the last of the Buccaneers, the pirates who were active in the 1680s, the crew of the Signet, for example, earned their chops in the Third Anglo-Dutch War. And as we move on, as we explore the 1690s, we're going to see a lot of old faces pop back up. Englishmen, Frenchmen, Dutchmen, privateers sometimes, buccaneers always. But you'll notice that the English and the Dutch, they were never at war there. 
and I mean the French and the English privateers would sometimes be at odds, but Jan Willems, remember him, he sailed almost exclusively with Englishmen. In the Caribbean, things were amicable between the Dutch and the English, and not just among the pirates. Dutch ships were well known to supply and trade with the English on Jamaica. They did so even when the English were unable to do so. There were ships that belonged to the Dutch and East India Company that were competitors, ships that, even in time of peace, might be staring each other down, sharing hard words, and preparing to square off for battle. But if a Dutch or a Portuguese ship showed up, they would all of a sudden turn and present a unified front. Occasionally, they got along. I mean, John Key, in The Honorable Company, writes, quote, Although the Dutch and English were bitter rivals throughout the East, on the long voyage to and from Europe, hostilities were suspended. At the Cape and St. Helena, ships of the London Company exchanged news and provisions with those of the VOC. Occasionally, Dutch and English ships actually sailed together. End quote. I wonder about that. I wonder why that is. The best answer that comes to mind is that the conflict between the Dutch and the English was a financial conflict at heart. It was about profits and goods and commodities and more than anything territory. But the conflict between the English and the Spanish, or the Dutch and the Spanish, or the English and the Portuguese and the Dutch and the Portuguese, that was a conflict of ideology. There was a religious divide there, a schism over the soul, over God. And that would always take precedent with these people over profit. However, as time moves on, as we will see, God begins to fall to the background, and profit will take center stage. Next time, we're going to return to the crew of Signet, currently in the Philippines. The crew of Signet, really since they left the Americas, have been a bit less than piratical thanks mostly to Captain Swan. They've been behaving as a crew of merchants should. However, as they whiled away the months on Mindanao, some of the crew was growing restless. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon... Those of you who have signed up to support the show through DonorBox or one of the other options on our website. Everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family or online. And everybody who has left a rating or a review. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tales from the old country told for a time.